0: Good morning everyone. We are going to take a break from catechesis. Um, This will be the next to last Sunday of the semester, and then we'll start back up in January, and you'll get information about that. Um, But for right now, we're going to try to wrap up as best we can the, uh, the Apostles' Creed section. But first, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Almighty and eternal God, so draw our hearts to you, so guide our minds, so fill our imaginations, so control our wills, that we may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you. And then use us, we pray, as you will, and always to your glory and the welfare of your people, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So the catechism continues on. Uh, we are uh, going to just, I'm going to make sure that we talk through the uh, the four marks of the church, again, since there were a lot of people who weren't here last week. Uh, But um, we are on page 50 in the catechism. Can you believe that? We've been doing this since August, and we're still on page 50. Uh, (laughs) You know, but that's the pace. That's how we work. Um, So when we get to the the church, um, and the Apostles' Creed doesn't say much about the church except to say that uh, we believe um, in the Holy Catholic Church, right? Right. and, and that's, that says a lot more than you'd see at first glance. Um, C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote a, uh, uh, an introduction, and if you ever want to read something from the Church Fathers, you know, pick up a copy of Athanasius on the Incarnation with the introduction by C.S. Lewis. Because um, Lewis really gets this right. He says, you know, to say that I believe in the Church means that I believe the Church is trustworthy. It's not to say, I believe the church exists, because anybody can see that, right? It's to say, I actually trust that the church will deliver to me the truth. Um, And that's a really substantial thing, because I think a lot of people struggle with this trusting of the church, right? It's like, first off, which church, right? Second off, what if a church is bad? (laughs) Like, what if a church's leadership goes wrong? How does that work? And here, I want to make it really clear, we're talking about the whole church uh, throughout time, and the four marks of the church actually bear this out. So we find the four marks of the church in the in the Nicene Creed, um, and they are uh, out. They are laying out for us um, how we can recognize the church when we see it. Right? Because um, the first thing that has to be said is the church is not some sort of organization. Right? Um, it's not simply formed because a number of like minded people get together, they fill out a form, and they all start putting money in, and then it's like, oh, we have the church. That's not how it works. Um, how is the church formed? According to the New Testament, right? What's that? Well, sure, word and sacrament. Okay, that's a big part of it, and we can say more about that. But the scripture tells us that the church is built upon the sure cornerstone of Jesus Christ, you know, the apostles and prophets and all the rest, um, and that, that the church is therefore, in, and to use the words of Scripture, uh, the bulwark and pillar of the truth. So, it is to say that the church has, is tasked with maintaining this, this truth of the faith. Um, and you might say, well, show me the proof of that, right? <laughs> and, and I would simply say, you've got to go back to these four marks. Why the four marks of the church? As listed in the Nicene Creed. Well, it's because the. Just imagine, it's the fourth century, and they're writing these words about the church. Right, it's late fourth century. You've got lots of Christians competing for right doctrine. I mean, you've got Arians, you've got people that deny the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and and the the council fathers decide that they are going to put it, make it very clear what the marks of that church are. Okay, so let's let's work through them, and it's 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 four, and you should memorize them. You should say it's one. Holy, Catholic, and Apostolic, right? Because there are some, let's just, let's just kind of work through it really simply here. There are some who simply say, well, but maybe the church is many, right? Maybe there are many different churches, and I'm a part of this one, and you're a part of that one, and we can just all kind of agree to disagree and move on with our lives. Right? Maybe we could even say, well, let's just see which one comes out on top. Um, the church is holy, and, and the church, oh, and the, the, the council fathers say this they say, no, there's only one church. That's it. That's it. There's one. Then they get down to the holy. Uh, what does it mean to say the whole, the church is holy? Well, they're saying that the church is set apart, right? They're saying that the church is um, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Um, and it is this one church within, within whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Um, why is the church called Catholic? Well, this is one of the questions in the catechism, but but... There are those who say um, that, that, well, the faith doesn't have to be one whole thing. It could be many different things. Um, there are those who say, well, you know, um, I just like our unique kind of, uh, let's just say, Spanish Christianity. That's where the truth really is. It's just in this one part of the world. Um, and this was happening all over the place, right? In the, in, in the end of the fourth century, you're having lots and lots and lots of rigorous sex, all kinds of people breaking away. Um, and so we like to think like there's this pristine church history, right? It's, it's a unified church up until like, what, 1054? And then it splits, into, it splits into, and then it splits into greater parts in the Reformation. And the reality of it is that there have always been um, departures from the one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Um, and you might say, well, that's fine for an Anglican to say, you know, why aren't you a part of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church? And I would say, it's our contention that we are. It's our contention that, um, that, that, uh, that the one holy Catholic and apostolic faith is, is held by us in this way. Okay, but I could say more about that as we go forward. And then, and then lastly, this, uh, this, this word apostolic, what does it mean for the church to be apostolic? And it certainly means that we go out into the world proclaiming the gospel. That's important. But for the the Nicene Fathers' purposes, and it's actually in Constantinople that they do this, um, they're really saying it's built upon the foundation of the apostles. Christianity is either apostolic and therefore genuine, or it's not apostolic and therefore not genuine. Um, And keep in mind, I want to really kind of hammer this, this point home. In the year 381, when they add this section to the creed and they describe the church in these four marks, these are, in many cases, the bishops who are the children of those who were persecuted during the persecutions. These are, in many cases, those who are the successors to bishops who are martyred. These are, in many cases, bishops who uh, uh, are of the major churches that are mentioned right in Scripture, right? So, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in uh, Antioch, the church in Jerusalem, the church, uh, all these churches, they can mark direct succession from those apostles in the line of authority. Um, and so they come in, and, and, and it's very clear, like, the church is apostolic. This is what it means. Um, it follows the apostles. Okay, um, so I'm just going to let you read through that if you want, but but that's simply to say that when Anglicans are looking for genuine, real deal Christianity, we look for those marks: one, holy, Catholic, and Apostolic. So <clears throat> a great example would be to say um, something like this: If any little, uh, or even just a, a, a minor church says, you know, or, or a group of churches says, "We're the true church. There are no others. We're it." Um, we alone have a corner on right doctrine. Um, then, then that must be contested. And and you might say, well, what about Anglicanism? What do Anglicans teach? And they say we teach strongly and affirmatively. We do not have a corner on the market. <laughs> okay. So if you're looking to say if you're looking for Anglicans to say we alone hold the true doctrine, you'll never hear an Anglican say that. You'll always hear an Anglican take this much more moderated position where we say we have the faith. And we have it it as it was delivered. We have it as it was delivered in Scripture. And we have it as it was handed down through the centuries. But but we don't have a corner on it. No one does. Um, When we get to things like like Catholic, um, there there are some even today who say, uh, today um, we are ready to make innovations to the faith that have no basis in history, have never been done before, so they say, uh, <laughs> that, are, that are entirely and radically new. And those innovations must be rejected on Catholic principles. They have to be. Um, another way to put it, not only, not only does Catholic mean going, going back in time, but it means going throughout uh, uh, geography. Um, so, you know, listen, I've, I've been all over the world and, and worshiped with Christians all over the world. Like, two years ago, uh, we were in northern Iraq, <laughs> and, and we went to this church in northern Iraq. And, and listen, it was recognizable what was going on, right? But you could not call it um, the one way to do it, because there are so many, like, regional things that happen. And, and uh, in local churches, we all have our kind of quirks, right? Um, and, and the, you know, the truth of it is, the fathers make mention of this. I mean, they'll even say things like, so here in this city, in our church, we fast on, you know, Tuesdays and Thursdays, and in the other, and in the churches across the Mediterranean, they fast on Fridays and on Mondays. What do you do? And the fathers will say things like, well, when you're there, you do what they do, <laughs> and when you're here, you do what we do. Like, why? Well, because these are not essential things. They're, they're not essential to the faith, um, but in the things that are, we are, we're, we're of one voice, um, and, and I will say this, you know, often when you start to study these things, you start to say, well, I just see such variance. I see, I see so many people all over the map. And how is it that, that the church is one? And, and I will uh, say to you that, that through the years, um, I've, one of the things, you know, I, I will just say this, I'm, I'm a very convinced Anglican as I get older and older, and I, sort of, and I sort of say to myself as I look at it, I say, you know… The way to find that Catholic faith is in the ancient witness of the church regarding um, what is spoken of in Scripture. Um, there's a great unified witness about that. It's vast, and it's varied, but there's a unified witness about that. Um, and so, um, when, when, you, uh, when you overturn that, um, you wind up outside of this. Now, I do want to go back to what you said, this, this understanding of word and sacrament. Um, in Anglicanism, uh, the the insistence on word and sacrament is is right there in the prayer book. Um, What has to happen every time the Eucharist is celebrated? This is really important. There must be preaching. Scripture must be read. Read. In the medieval church, there, in the late medieval church, prior to the Reformation, there were uh, masses where you could go and you would not even know that the scriptures were read at all. Because it was like, there was a sentence from scripture. <laughs> there was like two sentences, maybe three sentences, a psalm. But you would not know that it was going on because it was something that was happening up at the altar and that was it. Um, a little gospel text was read. But, but let me just say this, the medieval church was, was built around efficiency because part of it was we need to say as many masses as possible for the dead. Um, and so it's a lot of cathedrals were just basically mass factories. That's what they were. And, and the, one of the great things about the, the prayer book is it, is it says you can't do that. Um, and it puts structure around this. One of the things it says is um, you have to gather three people at least in order to celebrate the Eucharist. Why? Because so-called private masses in which only the priest receives are banned in Anglicanism. We can't do it. Um, Eucharistic celebrations where the people are not receiving are not to happen, ever. Um, in fact, in the, in, the, in the old days of the, you know, when, when people didn't come to receive communion every Sunday, like, which was only the last, you know, I want to say 120 years maybe at the most in any church, except for these, um, The, the Anglican priest had to basically go around and ask, say, <laughs> this, is in the, uh, this is in the exhortations, like, I'd like to, I propose to celebrate the Eucharist on such and such a date. In order to do so, I need three at least of you to sign up and tell me that you intend on receiving so that I can celebrate, right? Um, so, there's a structure put around that. But you must preach, <laughs> you must read scripture, and, and you must have people for it. So you see that word and sacrament are, are actually enforced by, uh, this, uh, by, the, by the prayer books through the centuries. Um, and so that's, that's huge. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so, one way that I'd put it is that I would say Anglicanism is a way of practicing the Catholic faith, right? It's a good way. It's a reliable way. Um, are there other ways? Sure, sure. Um, just as there are, you know, listen, there are numerous ethnic identities, numerous like, you know, uh, histories, traditions, all those kinds of things that, that, that do exist rightly within the church. Um, the other analogy I would use would be C.S. Lewis's analogy, right? If you imagine Christianity as a hall with rooms off of it, multiple rooms, right? You can't just hang out in the hall because the hall is not a room that you want to stay in. There's there's nowhere to sit. There's nothing. To this is the analogy he's using, and he's like, "Well, you ultimately have to go into a room and inhabit that room." Um, and what I would say is that uh, that that uh, Anglicanism is a good room to be in. It's a reliable room to be in. Okay? And, and the reason I would say that is, is first and foremost that the, the authority of Scripture is upheld. Um, and you might say, well, tell me how that's true across Anglicanism. It's like, yeah, m- this is what it's all about, right? This is what the fight's about. Okay? So I want to make that really clear. Like, that's what's going on. And you can't just sort of, this is part of the struggle for a lot of people. They're like, well, why don't you just tell them to get lost? You can't do that. Like that's not how it works, right? Because because if you're a part of the church, then you've got to you've got to work through all this. Like you got to even let time take its take its way. Um, and if the church is an organic unity, then a lot of things have to be worked out over time. Um, I would also say too that uh, that the commitment to um, to this in really truly emphatic statement that we are not the only church It's just massive in my book. Um, it expresses a kind of humility, actually, that I think is right to have. It's to say there are certain things that because Scripture doesn't give us leave to denounce them and doesn't give us leave to say that those who do such things are heretics, we can't do it. Like, So there's got to be some charity about that, right? Um, In in previous catechesis classes, I've said one of the things that I actually dearly love about um, Anglicanism and the way we think about things is that um, there, there are two forms of group theory. Do you know about group theory? Anybody? Anybody know anything about it? Okay. So groups are formed in two ways. One way is to form a kind of central rallying point that is extremely descriptive and say, everybody, this is where we're going. Get here as fast as possible. So you just say, this is where we are, right here, right? So like, you see this happen with tour groups and stuff. It's like if you ever go to a foreign country and they've got the flag, you know, and, and if you've been who knows where, and, and, and you, you follow your tour guide, right? Because they've got a, they've got a pole and a flag and, and you keep your eyes on that and you go where they go and that's, and that's it. That's one kind of group, okay? And you see the groups forming that way. The other way that groups form is by saying, okay, well, that's one way, but there's another way. We could just simply put a fence around us and say, this is where the boundaries are. And you can have a blast within that fenced-in area, but the moment you jump the fence, you're not a part of the group anymore, right? So you be descriptive about where the fences are. And I would just say that in functional groups, you'll always have a little bit of both. So for Anglicans, we've got, this is where it really comes down, we've got the creeds, we've got scripture, we've got Lots of things that establish central rallying points. We do not have, like a many, many Protestant organizations, many Protestant churches, uh, a kind of confession of faith um, where emphatically these doctrines are spelled out. Right? What we have instead is things like the formularies, the articles, the prayer book, which do something else, which is describe where the boundaries are, where the limits are. And it's important to have limits. Right? It's important to say, okay, this is probably going on, but is this helpful to you to kind of hear this? Okay. So it's like this. Um, and you'll, you'll see this a lot. Um, let me give you an example. Okay. Ah. I'm trying to think of an example of this. You know, we Americans are really bad at this, but, but Brits are really good at this. It's, it's an example of uh, churning out uh, rich fudge. Okay, so my example here would be to say something like, um well let's let's just let's 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 read an article. I think we have the thirty nine articles in this prayer book. Darn a little better. no well, maybe we don't. That would be unfortunate. You know, as I as I come to it I'm not even thinking that they're there. Um let me see. Okay. Ah. This might take me a little while, but they're they're definitely there. You know what? I'm going to look at baptism. Okay. So. Anglicanism could have very well just said, this is the hard and fast teaching on baptism. And there's some of that. We don't believe that, and we don't believe that. Um, what instead happens is you get all this lovely language in the, in the actual rite for baptism. Um, listen to this. Um, we thank you, Father. This is page 168 in the prayer book. We thank you, Father, for the water of baptism. In it, we are buried with Christ in his death. Okay. Where does that come from? Yeah, Romans 6. Okay. So we're just going to use Scripture. Okay. By it, we share in his resurrection. Okay. Also Romans 6. Through it, we are made regenerate by the Holy Spirit. Also in the New Testament, right? This idea of regeneration is right there, okay? Uh, Therefore, in joyful obedience to your Son, we bring into his fellowship those who come to him in faith, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is Matthew 28. So, where you're stringing Scripture together, you're saying emphatically what Scripture says about it, but you're not cooking up new language to describe what that teaching is. Does that make sense? Like, you're using the biblical language. And time and again, time and again, this happens, uh, where there will be a kind of um, way of, and I wish I could come up with the best example of this, but a way of saying almost two things at once that are true and held in tension. Okay, actually, I'll give you another better one. This is the really good one. The really good one is the words of administration at communion. Okay, very first prayer book, the, the words used to distribute the host are um, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. Okay, would you say that's kind of a high Eucharistic theology? Yes, It's just the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> very, very, very straightforward. Um, in 1552, in the second prayer book, that phrase is cut and a new one put in, and it's this. Take this in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. You see, two totally different Eucharistic theologies, you would think. Okay? 1559, new prayer book. Mary's dead, Elizabeth's queen, both. (laughs) Do you see what just happened? Now, in a lot of ways, I'll just admit, this was a fudge. Like, this was just a fudge. But what happened? It's brilliant, right? Now you have, these, you have this overlay, and we can actually say emphatically, well, what is it? It's both, right? So when I, when I distribute communion, I use these words, right? And I use both sets because both are true. Do you see what's going on here? Um, we're not just going to say, well, it's this one and not that one. It's this one and not that one. Well, they're both inside bounds, right? Um, And that can be distressing at a certain point because sometimes you're just like, well, what is it? Just tell me what it is. And I'm going to just say, it's both, (laughs) right? Because this is is at the heart of Anglicanism. So I I, I really did not mean to go on like this. But at the heart of Anglicanism is this comprehensive identity. It's to say... really do desire to comprehend all the realities that are there. And and sometimes it will seem like you're not being definitive enough. And the reason that that's the case is, A, Scripture's not definitive in the way you want it to be, in the way you hope it would be. And that's frustrating, is it not? Like, it's really frustrating that, you know, you, you try as you might to describe your particular bit of theology biblically, what always happens when you get to that point, you're like, oh, here I am. Then you read a text and it's like, it's not working. <laughs> and, and, and what should be the answer? It should, it should just be humble awe, right, that, 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 I, that I don't get it like I think I might be able to. And that's frustrating, especially for Americans who are like, we want to be definitive and we want to say it 100% what What exactly as it is. And we're just going to just plow forward and make sure it's abundantly clear. And we get stuff in the prayer book and we get stuff in, in Anglicanism that just doesn't really give you that. And, you know, you just you fight through it. Okay. So it, when we get to the saints, this is a particular uh, point where this happens. So um, let's, let's jump in, page 52. who are the saints? The saints are all those in heaven and on earth who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who are set apart, holy to God in Christ, and transformed by His grace. All right, so this is an interesting point because you might say, well, what's the difference between the communion of saints and the church? And, and I would say there's a slight Distinction that's being drawn, but it's not major, and um, and it's clear that the creed wants you to believe in both things, right? The Apostles' Creed wants you to believe in the Church, also wants you to believe in the community of the saints, um, and and how can we distinguish between the two? Well, here's the first part: the Church is not just those Christians who are alive at this moment. What is the Church? It's the whole community of faithful believers going back all the way to Jesus Christ, and some will even hold before that. Um, that, um, you know, there are many fathers who say, listen, you think the church began on the day of Pentecost? Not so. The church includes all those who even hoped for Christ, right? And who met him in his descent among the dead. How's that? Right? So they're, they're going back even further because they're simply saying it's all those who believe." Um, in the Eastern Church, there's a great, there's a great tradition of um, constructing icons of Old Testament figures with Christian imagery. Why? Because they're looking forward, and they now behold what it is they hope for. Now, maybe that scandalizes you, but there it is, right? Um, so, how do, you, how do you delineate between these two things? Well, well the first is, is to go back to this understanding of in the church, when I say that we believe, when we say that we believe in the church, what we're saying is we trust the church. When we say we believe in the communion of saints, we're saying we believe that there's this partaking in the holiness which is given to Christians as well as holy things. So, I want to say it's both. It's another both thing. Um, So it's all those in heaven and on earth who place their faith in Jesus Christ, who are set apart, holy to God in Christ, and transformed by His grace. There's a really wonderful book uh, by a guy named Dennis Ellert that speaks about um, how this, this communion of holy things is meant both to refer to the communion of saints, meaning you and me and the saints proper, right, as well as our communion in the holy things of God. So here's this. We partake in communion. We partake in holy things together. This makes us a communion of saints. Okay. Um, so this is what sets apart people, men and women, children, as holy. Okay, but then we're going to ask this question. What does the word communion mean? Communion means being one with someone in union, union and unity for Christians, it refers to the unity of the three persons within the one being of God, to our union with God through one, our union with Christ, and to our unity with one another in Christ. So where does the reference go? It goes straight to the Trinity. The members of the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, are one being, three persons. Okay, now I've tried to explain this in the past but without ever being successful, but here it is. How many persons do you have? One, right? How many beings do you have? One, right? Um, you know, I'm not potentially two beings. I'm I'm one, right? Um, within the Godhead, we have three persons and one, in one, and this means that they are actually one, while also being three, um, and that's a paradox. That's how the Church is one while also being many. Okay. So we have to speak of the manyness of the church as well as the oneness of the church. And it's here in this communion of saints that we say how this happens. Now, if you're like me, uh, you grew up in a way in which uh, you were kind of given the impression that what really makes for unity is when everybody agrees, right? Now, how's that working out? Not very well, okay? You know, and listen, this plays out in the political realm as well. How are we one nation right now? Can I just ask that question, like, does that not seem impossible that we call ourselves one nation under God, indivisible, right? How are we one? Well, we're one because the law establishes us as one, right? There's something greater than any one of us that establishes us as one nation. Now, we might, you know, and, and, and we did, Enter into a civil war. Did the civil war undermine the oneness of the United States of America? I would say historically it tried to. Now, granted, I'm the son of Yankees, so you're going to listen to this, but, but I will simply say it tried to, but didn't, ultimately. Um, what happens when there's schism in the church? Does it undermine the unity of the church? Well, it tries to, but it doesn't. Okay. What happens when there's disunity in the church? does it undermine that unity? Well, it tries to, but it can't. Um, and so, we simply say that communion means being one with. The other part, though, what establishes Christian communion? Is it, is it that the Sheltons and I are buddies, and we like each other, and we, and we think like, yeah, well, so we're forming a church because it's like, you know, we're just so in agreement. no, right? Listen, when when their kids were baptized, right, they were joined to Christ. And back in 1980, when I was baptized, I was joined to Christ in his death and resurrection. And that, my friends, is what makes us one. We join in one table, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That's what makes us one, okay? Now, we might go in radically divergent directions. Some of them are intolerable. I will say that strongly. But you can't just kind of say, well, you're out. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Um, because that communion in Christ is, is a oneness. Okay, so communion means being one with someone in union and unity. For Christians, it refers to the unity of the three persons within the one being of God, to our union with God, through our union with Christ, and to our unity with one another in Christ. So you see what's going on here? It's saying, um, to our union with God, through our union with Christ. So to be joined to Christ is to be joined to the Godhead, okay? and to our unity with one another in Christ. This is huge. It's massive that this is, that this is stated. Um, because for most people, I think they look and they say, well, what makes us one is that we, we just, you know, like we like the same things, we, you know, we, we have vast widespread agreement. And it's like, well, but that breaks down. But I will tell you this. This is, this, is, this is huge, and I want to kind of spend a little bit of time on it. Ancient Christians believed in the communion of saints so strongly that they could not tolerate because of what they experienced in the church, they absolutely could not tolerate divisions among them in society. Okay. Several examples here. Um, let's say I have a slave who has, owes me a debt, right? And he's actively paying that debt and chances are he might not ever pay it. And he and I are evangelized together. We're baptized side by side. How long do you think I'm going to be able to maintain that relationship? In some cases, the bishop might tell me, you just can't. You have to set your slave free, and you will be baptized together. Now, he might continue to serve in your house, but he has to be free. Um, Sometimes that didn't happen. We know it didn't happen. Another thing might happen, too, which is this. Um, I might set him free and then adopt him into my family as an heir. That happened, too. Okay. Um, lots of other things would happen. Um, if you ever go to Rome or any place in Europe and you see the catacombs, there's something really wild going on in the catacombs, which is that um, in, the ancient, in, the, in the pre-Christian history of those places, you'll see catacombs where only the rich are being buried and they're being buried with these glowing epitaphs, you know, long epitaphs, like, you know, here lies so-and-so who is rich and awesome and powerful and amazing, and he was everybody's friend, even though you know that's not true, and, you know, it's all these kinds of things, right? It's glowing epitaphs. The Christians, wealthy Christians, started to say, I got all this space down in my underground caves and lair, you know, which is something we tend to do, uh, and I can't bear to see my brothers and sisters buried in paupers' graves. So here's what I'm going to do. My catacombs are now open to all members of our church. They can be buried right there. And sometimes it became that the bishop's home, which is where lots of buildings start to be constructed, underground is where the catacombs would be, and the bishop would just say, "This this is our public burial ground. And, you know, this is reflected in lots of churches that have churchyards, right? You don't charge a dime for it. It's like, we just bury you out in the yard. Like, that's how it works. Why? Because we can't bear to see our brothers and sisters separated from us in life or in death. That's a huge, massive thing. It's just massive. Um, It's, in fact, one of the substantial changes that takes place in American life is that we somehow figure out a way to enslave our brothers and sisters and talk about it as a good thing. That's that's actually a a, a step forward. Um, Two contrasting ideas are held. One is, there are brothers and sisters. The other one, there are slaves. And we we try to make both of them true when they can't be true together. Um, So this is just to say that that this communion of saints was so real to people that they were throwing social convention away. Um, Just the fact, So we're going to do something during the Eucharist going to pass the piece. And, you know, we're going to do it in the COVID style, which is like, like, I think we've all become, like, Japanese in some way. <laughs> but, but, but what's going on there? Especially when it's like, to, in, in Roman society to express equality among people between social strata and wealth strata is crazy. It does not happen. Um, you have to be born into nobility. You have to be, and in order to have anything to do with these people, you have to be born into it. That's it. Or you have to go win a big war, you know? It, but, but you have to be admitted to it. It's, a, it's important. There are these distinctions of society that can't be held. Okay, You could be adopted. Um, you know, but this happens today. It happens to this very day. Um, when Christians are evangelized in India, the caste system is disrupted big time. It completely falls apart um, because you just can't maintain it. Does that make sense? So, so the communion of saints means that our unity in Christ builds us into a communion and fellowship of oneness with Christ and only through Christ to each other. And it's here that you have to get this. You know, if, if, if I just sort of say something like this, like, I really deeply respect Chris. Chris is my friend. We hang out together on occasion. We do this. We, you know, and that's, that's, how, that's the thing that Chris and I have going on, right? If that's it, then I can just go find another friend when I want to. But if our bond is in Christ who holds us together in this communion of the holy, there are bigger things than just what I can see, and that matters. It really does matter. Um, that's why when, you know, and, and people will, will ask questions like this. I'm, I'm going on a rant, but I feel like it's, like it's time. Okay. <laughs> Occasionally this happens. Like, you know, why is it that we don't have separate children's worship at Christ Church? Because we're outwardly expressing the communion and fellowship that is ours in Christ. Is it easy? No. Not at all. I mean, you have to put up with kids being loud and disruptive and all that stuff. And, and parents of children have to put up with some occasional glances, like, would you shut that kid up? Uh, and feeling self-conscious, right? But, but uh, we're one communion. And that's expressed outwardly. Um, you know, and, and even in that way, the, the point is not that you would hear and understand the entire sermon. Because here's a, here's a hint for you. Just about nobody ever does, okay? I, I am routinely surprised when I'm standing by that door and somebody's like, wow, it was a great sermon today, Father. And I'll be like, well, what did you learn from it? And they'll tell me something that I didn't even say. And what was going on is they were bunny trailing and they thought, "And that really makes sense. And, and, and then they're like thanking me for something they put together in their own heads. It's like, well, okay, I'm glad you benefited, but that wasn't what I said. Like, because because let's, let's, just, let's just be completely forthright here. God is doing greater things in here than we could ever do. He's doing greater things in us than we could ever do on our own. Um, and that, that matters. And that's what, that's, what the communion of, that's what the communion of the saints is. It's to say, or, so go ahead. We're going to get there. Yeah, trust me, we're going to get there. Okay, but let's, let's ask 102. What is the communion of the saints? The communion of the saints is the fellowship of all those in heaven and on earth who are united in Christ as one body through one spirit in holy baptism. Okay, so now we get really clear about it, and it's to say that it is baptism that makes the communion of the saints. Um, and that's a really hard thing, is it not? Because you'll note, you know, not, every, not everyone maintains uh, fidelity to their baptism, not even remotely. But here's what, this is the distinction that I want you to see, because for Anglicans, you don't just get baptized as many times as it takes. Um, and I've, I've had this happen, where I'm looking at somebody who, I, I remember this, had this old Air Force colonel in a parish, and he was a tough old dear. I was praying for him, and other people were praying for him, and I was preaching right at him. I would look him in the eye while I was preaching. And this old man, 80 years old, he became like a baby. He was just like, I don't know what's happening to me, but I believe all this now. And I was like, oh, that's great, dude. And then he was like, can I be baptized? I was like, you already were baptized. <laughs> it was just like, start receiving communion. You're a Christian. Do you see what's going on? It's like, I can walk away from that identity, but that identity is still there. Does that make sense? So baptism does establish it. Let me just say that. It establishes it. Um, and so that's why we don't re-baptize. Because you're, you're a member of that communion of saints. You might have walked away from it, but you come back to it. We, we welcome you with open arms. Um, yeah, that's right. You can't lose it. Um, you can't lose it. Um, but, but the question that we really have to ask is, what does it look like to participate in the communion of saints? So here's this, this question. How do you participate in the communion of saints? I live as a member of the community of saints through faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit by gathering to worship God and my fellow, with my fellow Christians, by praying for and encouraging one another, and by coming to one another's aid in times of trouble, sickness, or grief. Okay, so I'm going to break this down. The first way is through worship. Um, it is the church's worship that, def- that, that is the highest form of participation in the community of saints. I'm going to say this strongly. Um, well, listen. In the Eucharist, the priest stands at the altar and says, um, Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, believing that gathered there is not just the visible church, but the invisible church, not in the sense of we don't know who the real Christians are, but in the sense of I can't see them because they're in heaven, right? That church gathered together in worship. Um, this might be just a new concept for you, but the, uh, the understanding that Christians have always had is that the church is gathered together in worship, both in heaven and on earth, and that there's some, the boundaries between heaven and earth break down in the church's worship. Um, I was telling some people last week that there's a, there's a term in, in the Greek Orthodox Church that's in the in the Eastern Church. It's something like, syn, it's synaxis. It means something like the coming together. So not only is the church coming together to worship uh, you know, people who are in the same parish, but the whole church is coming together, which is why in, in the East they paint icons of the saints all over the church, the inside of the church. Why? Well, so that you can see visibly what is going on invisibly. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, and that's why uh, we have, well, we're a little bit toned down here because this church was built by Lutherans who didn't want to put pictures of the saints in there, but, you know, that's, that's how it works. Um, but that's why traditionally Christians have, have depicted the saints, they've put them in their churches, they've had it clear, uh, that's what's going on. And I would also add to that that, that worshiping over the, cate- the catacombs, which, you know, listen, go to any medieval church. If you ever go to Europe, go to any medieval church with medieval foundations, uh, ancient foundations—you can go down really far, and you'll see layer after layer of, of church civilization. And usually, there's burial spots down there when you go there, um, and that's just how it is. Right? Built over the top, you know. Um, there's actually really good evidence that um, that St. Peter's in Rome was actually built over the tombs of Peter and Paul. They've taken bone scrapings from some of the remains down there and they they can say pretty unequivocally like yeah uh, it's kind of surprising when you find Galilean <laughs> DNA in Rome like how does that happen <laughs> it's like well that's how it works um so just just some thoughts there. Is that this is this is how it happens right that we start to think about these things um and and it's an important thing especially for those that are that are grieving right the loss of of a, of a Christian brother or sister um, or a grandparent or parent, uh, is that, that um, they, we actually participate in, in, in the same worship, the same heavenly worship. Um, but we also gather with, with, with each other in this way. We pray for each other. We encourage one another. Um, we come to each other's aid in times of trouble, sickness, or grief. Um, I've had just the joy of watching this parish, you know, gather around people that are going through awful times, um, really difficult times. And, uh, and it's a great joy to see that, um, because it, it shows that that communion is strong. Um, okay, how are the church on earth and the church in heaven joined in worship? Through union with Christ, as celebrated in the sacrament of Holy Communion, the church on earth participates with the church in heaven in the eternal worship of God. Okay, so there's this participatory worship going on that is, that is heavenly. Okay? That's the orientation of Christian liturgy as a whole, is it's, it's meant to draw us into things heavenly. Um, and in fact, this is the language of Scripture. You know, Jesus Christ has gathered into one things earthly and things heavenly, okay. and this gets to your question. Um, how should we think about um, the invocation of saints? And uh, I will first say that the Anglican articles seem, seem to reject the invocation of saints. They say, you know, the invoca- invocation of the saints is to be rejected. Okay, fine. That's, that's 16th century. Um, And there was a concern, and it was a very real concern, a very valid concern, that um, people were essentially practicing uh, superstition at a very deep level, and in fact, something like necromancy. um, Invoking the saints, you know, come to help me. Come to be, you know, do this, do that. Um, In the last 150 years or so, uh, the Anglo-Catholic tradition within Anglicanism has sought to embody a way of the invocation of the saints that is not universal, so meaning that it doesn't happen in the liturgy, but it happens in private devotion, where you might uh, uh, ask for a saint to particularly pray for you, and that is permissible um, by just about anybody's standards. Um, now, there are some in Anglicanism who would say that is to be rejected as, <laughs> as just basically like rank papacy and all that. And, and I just think that, that there is a way of a moderated way of doing this. Yeah, I mean, you, listen, you get put 20 Anglicans in a room, you get 40 opinions. Um, but, but the reality of it is this, and this is what I would really say is that such things are not expressly condemned in Scripture. I think necromancy is, should be condemned, right? Let's just say that. Like, necromancy should be condemned. I'll get, I'll get to yours. It absolutely should be condemned. But this idea that you would simply say, like, hey, um, I know that, you know, there, there are saints in heaven, and I, and I ask for their intercession. Um, like, what, what else are they going to do? And it's a pretty moderated position. It's not, it's not full-on, like, um, is is pretty pretty widely accepted. I'd just say that. So go ahead. Right, so there, there, so there, there's two, there are two things going on here. A lot of it is just linguistic problems, right? It's lawsuits end in prayers, right? You, you know this now, right? There's a prayer at the end of the lawsuit that prays to the judge saying, you have the power to intervene in this case, please do it. Am I committing idolatry by filing a lawsuit? wouldn't say that, but, but what I'm saying is that, that, uh, that the, the, the language starts to break at a certain point. Um, you know, and in, 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 in older times, you would say, I pray thee, like, help me, right? I'm hungry, or something like that. Well, I get it. I get it. But what I'm pointing out is that is that, that, that petition is not worship. And I would say this too, the ancient church understands that that's not the case. When this stuff starts to happen, they get that um, there's a worship that is due to God alone, right? And in fact, listen, it's, it's written right into the councils. The councils say there is, there, and they use two Greek words they use dulia and latria, okay? Um, and, and latria is worship, and dulia is a kind of service, it's a kind of honoring. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you could, okay, you could, you could describe it in multiple ways, right? It, it could be just like, maybe the saints can understand, maybe they can see. Okay, we, I mean, lots of Christians use that language, like, Grandma's up in heaven and she's looking down on us, you know? It's like, maybe you could reject that. You could also just say something like this, well, lots of Christians believe that God tells them to pray for somebody, who needs our prayers. And so we pray for them. Like why can't that happen in heaven? Like why can't it be that that God says, you know, so and so's asked you to pray for them. I mean, but but here's what I'm going to say, like this is this is the real point you got to get. This is to say that the boundaries of scripture don't necessarily preclude it, right? So it's in bounds. But, here's the thing about Anglicanism, it's not in the prayer book. Does that make sense? Like, you will never attend a public liturgy at Christ church where we make intercession to the saints ever. Ever. I'm making you that commitment right now. I don't have to make that commitment, because there are parishes in the diocese that out on all sorts of stuff, and they do that stuff. We won't do it here. Why? Because I'm committed to this. Like, I'm really committed to this. I will do this in my own life, in my own time, in my own way, and you can do what you want. Because there's freedom in that. Does that make sense? Like, so, so I think the idea is don't impose anything on you that is explicitly not clearly defined, right? And there's freedom in that. So I hope that helps. Like, that's, this is why we Anglicans delineate between public worship according to the, to the received rites, and private devotions where lots of other things happen, right? And it's like, I, I can be critical of a church's public liturgy and will be, right? I'm not gonna tend to be critical of somebody's private devotions, unless they've asked me, what do you think about this, right? Um, So, there you go. Go ahead, Chris. This has gotta go. Yes. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Uh, you know, this century council, um, the council of Chalcedon makes it abundantly clear that um, she is to be honored and even, even hyper-honored, like super-honored, um, but not worshipped. Does that help? Like, that's, that's where things go, um, and, it's, and it's made clear. Um, the boundaries are marked out so that it's, so that it's clear. Okay. Thanks, everybody.